1: Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. I'm speaking with Jan at her home by remote connection. Welcome, Jan, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thanks. Glad to be here, Justine. Glad to have you. It's my honor. You were a novitiate nun for three years, but you were asked to leave. And as stated by the head nun of the novitiates, that your disposition was unsuited to religious life. Do you agree with that pronouncement? Are you lacking in a religious disposition? Well, we have to kind of tease
2: out the difference between religion and faith. So let's think of it like this. Religion is the menu and faith is the meal. Or religion is the score and faith is the music. So I am not a religious person who pays any attention whatsoever to doctrines and dogmas, and any of the patriarchal tools that the Catholic Church particularly is using to keep us in line. But I am truly 100% committed to creating a powerful, daily, spiritual life that informs everything I do, say, and know about myself. So true, I do not have a religious disposition.
1: (laughs) Right, but definitely a spiritual one.
2: Yes, definitely.
1: Yes, yes. So I know that it took you a long, long time to reconcile yourself with the dismissal from the convent, which I know was shocking to you, and then to come to a resolution about your homosexuality and reconciling that not only with you, maybe never with the church per se, but with your family and with your mother. Can you talk about coming out to your mother and how that was to begin with and, and where that is now today?
2: Yes, it was very troubling. It, it was in the early 70s. I was living in California, she in Syracuse. I told her when I flew home one weekend that I was gay. She was a little bit, what's that even mean? A little haughty. She didn't want to hear anything about it. I said, it means I fall in love with women. I sleep with women. I have sex with women. She was, didn't like that at all. She said, I forbid you to tell your father. It'll give him a heart attack and it'll be your fault she didn't even want me in the house. She didn't want me to come home anymore from California because she thought she was the only barrier between my father and death and that he wouldn't be able to tolerate knowing his daughter was a lesbian. And there's an experience in the book. It's kind of a short story. We went driving up to a family cottage on a little lake in the Adirondacks and her sister Ruth, was there and her mother. So my grandma and my aunt Ruth were there. Mom and Ruth went right out immediately for a canoe ride. And I'm playing cards with my grandma. And I said something to her to the effect that mom and me were having a hard time. She goes, why is that? I said, just because she can't deal with me being a lesbian. And just as I said that my mom and aunt Ruth walked into the door and Aunt Ruth, they were both being charismatic Catholics at the time. So that's like all hopped up on reading the Bible, charismatic movement. It's more Pentecostal, fundamentalist emotions are involved. And both of them had been in that movement. And Aunt Ruth was going through a similar occasion with her daughter, who married her first cousin, because there's 65 of us first cousins, because my grandmother had 14 kids, and she's got 65 just first-grandchildren. So it's no big surprise. I mean, you hear of kissing cousins. But so these two cousins, Aunt Kay's daughter, Aunt Kay's son, Aunt Ruth's daughter, married each other, had children who are brilliant and very successful. But Aunt, Aunt Ruth had to really figure out how to reconcile that so that she could be accepting of her daughter. So when mom and Ruth walk into the camp door and say, Ruth goes, is that true, Jan? Your mom's having a hard time with you being a lesbian. I said, yeah, that's what we're dealing with. And she looked at my mother and said, Jesus never said who to love. He just said, love them all. Love them all, Marge. You should be proud of her for loving everyone. And at that point, my mom experienced the transformation. It was as if there was like all this light streaming in the room. And she started crying. And she said to me, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I've lived this long and been so stupid. And then she gave me permission to tell my father, which, of course, I never did because it was ne- no never any need to. He and I had no intimacy whatsoever.
1: Right. I love that. Part of your story when you're traveling in Greece with your mother. It's such a beautiful story when you just decide you're going to have mass with your mother. Can you describe that? That's so beautiful.
2: Yeah, we were on a little island, Antiparos, I think, and she's a good, hardy sleeper. So I get up Sunday morning. I had my guitar. I travel with a little guitar. I walked down this village, got wine got a thing of fresh bread. I had candles. And so I lit the candles, put out grapes, wine, bread. We didn't have any books there, but I set the table with the altar cloth. And I went and woke up my mom and said, it's time for mass, mom. I hope you don't mind that I'm saying it. Her eyes got a little buggy, but she came out. We're just at the kitchen table. And I followed the format of the mass. So I said, entrance song, what should it be? She goes, you are my sunshine, which is our favorite family song. So you are my sunshine, did the entrance song. Then we did, I said, we don't have any books to read from. So we'll each tell a story where somebody did good for us. And, or where we did good to somebody else, and that will be the passages that we share. And then when it was time for a confession, we, we both said, I'm sorry, I fell short in this area. We confessed ourselves, and I had a little bowl full of water, a little towel. We washed our hands in the water and helped each other dry them off. It was pretty intimate communion. We just had bread and wine together and had a closing song. And it's so easy for me to say because I just said at the night of the Last Supper, the only thing Jesus was trying to do was to get us to remember how he moved through the world, that he stood for nothing but justice and love and peace and mercy. Do this in memory of me. That's what he wanted us to do be merciful and just in a stand for peace. So we drank to that, and then we had our closing song, Danny Boy, or something. I don't know. But it's just, you make it up. That's why I call us sacrament makers. I think we're the sacrament makers of this day. Most of us who aren't allowed in churches or are not welcome in our churches have to figure out how to have a sacramental life. That means we have to make the sacraments ourselves. But I love it.
1: In some ways, Ritual making is also a very human endeavor and has been for thousands of years. So what is the importance of ritual in your life?
2: Reminds me of being a couple of years ago as I was invited to do a sacrament of the earth in Missouri somewhere. And we had about 25 people and we took the same elements of the mass and put them into four teams somebody had to go get readings, somebody had to create the altar, but everything had to be earth oriented. So no reference to the Bible, no reference to just look at the earth. Do not Google, you know, witches and pagan rituals. This has to come from our original source. Don't cheat. Just be in your group and pray over how should we do this part. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. But I would just say readings and now the offertory and now the communion team. Right. And now the singing team. And it was the greatest all time ever sacrament
1: of the earth. So it sounds like everyone really showed up. I mean, truly totally. uh, being present because it, it helped. There were teams of four or five.
2: Nobody had to do it alone.
1: Oh, Nice. Nice. That's another ingredient to remember that we're connected with each other and we support each other, which reminds me of another incident, huge, powerful incident in your life where you were in a a really bad car accident where you were outside your car and your car was hit and you ended up underneath your car.
2: My car, Death Valley in August. Very, very hot. Very hot. I was leaning up against the front of my car, videotaping these birds. And the Conoline van hit my car doing 75 miles an hour and sent me in the car off into the field. And I ended up under it. I don't know how, but it was burning third degree burns in my hip and my back. And I was in and out of consciousness. And I had to deal with the fact that I knew I was dying. And at first, I was anxious about all that, but then it was like, talk yourself down, Jan. You've heard enough stories of the great shaman going to the mountaintop, and surrendering his body, the Eskimo, the Inuit people, surrender their body, go out to the snowbank, whatever. So I talked myself down to this more stable place and said, okay, I was cruciform under the car. I was in the shape of a cross. But I couldn't dig out because I was impaled under the muffler. And so I said, okay, here I come. And I felt a movement of my soul right out through the soles of my feet, almost like hearing this sound. So now the soul goes through the soles of my feet and it's hovering up above me when I hear these voices going, oh, my God, is somebody there? Is anybody alive? And the next thing is like whoosh, right back in. The soul comes back in and I go, I'm here. I'm alive. Where are you? Where are these two men? They're running toward the car. They can't see me. I said under the car. I'm by the back tire. And so they say, wait there. And it was like the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) Wait there. We'll go get help. And I said to them, you are the help. Just lift up the car. And they go, no, we can't. We're not strong enough. We have to get help. And then this booming voice comes out of me. You are the help. Lift up the car. Next thing I knew, there comes my Subaru Outback, lift it up, and two hands pull me out and lay me on the ground and call the ambulance. And then, lo and behold, skin graft surgeries, and I'm as good as new.
1: Those words, you are the help, and that's kind of the point of it. And you've lived your life in that way that you have become the help. You've traveled all over the world. You do workshops. You've done presentations for peace and all sorts of things. And you point out, hey, we have come through bad times before and we have made a difference. We have stopped the Inquisition. We have had the reformation of the church and Martin Luther and, and women got the vote. So right. what's your advice in the chaotic threshold times that we're in right now? How can we be of help?
2: Jacob Needleman, a great philosopher, says the art form of the future will be group pondering. And I think we're all trying to ponder and we've been in COVID for two and a half years now. So we're trying to figure out how to unisolate ourselves, because some of us became more the monk, and we kind of like it. So going out less, right? So how to figure out, because thanks to COVID, we have Zoom. That's a blessing of COVID. We found out how to find each other around the world to do our group pondering. So I'm mostly facilitating group ponderings right now, but I'll tell you, it takes a whole new kind of thinking. And and I'll tell you a quote from, it's a Hasidic text. When the ax comes into the forest, the trees upon seeing its wooden handle, say, look, one of us. The ax goes into the forest. The trees see its wooden handle and say, look, one of us, that's non-dualistic thinking. That's how we get figured out how to get out of the Ukraine. You know, I've been a pacifist all my life, and I'm just waiting for NATO to go in there and stop the Russians, right? I can't come to an idea of a peaceful way to stop the bombing. But I do know it's time to stop the bombing that the world hasn't shown up yet, I think is inappropriate, the wrong call. But I also understand it's because of President Ronald Reagan's great idea, let's have a nuclear weapons war, that that's what's scaring us away right now. But I tell you what, the other day in my prayers, I wake up, I'm agitated about the war. What can I do? And I said, I can go take some cookies to my neighbor, Marge. Mm. That'll help. Because all the dots are connected.
1: They're all connected. And we do that which is close to us to do. Yeah, We do it these seemingly small acts. And we just don't know the kind of effect they're going to be. Oh, Jan, I want to thank you so much for being with us on the New Dimensions Cafe today.
2: Well, you talk about New Dimensions there as one huge ripple effect. That's a tsunami ripple effect, the kind of work you're doing. So
1: thank you. Well, may it be so. May it be so for both of us in our work. I've been speaking with Jan Phillips, and she's the author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic, and to find out more about her work, you can go to her website, janphillips.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, where you'll find several programs with Jan Phillips and over 1,700 others at newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you